Chapter Five of the Story of the Pony Express by Glenn D. Bradley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Five, California and the Secession Menace. When the Southern states withdrew, a conspiracy was on foot to force California out of the Union and organize a new republic of the Pacific with the Sierra Madre and the Rocky Mountains for its eastern boundary. This proposed commonwealth, when once erected, and when it had subjugated all Union men in the West who dared oppose it, would eventually unite with the Confederacy, and in event of the latter's success, which at the opening of the war to many seemed certain, the territory of the Confederate States of America would embrace the entire Southwest and stretch from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Aside from its general plans, the exact details of this plot are of course impossible to secure, but that the conspiracy existed has never been disproved. That the rebel sympathizers in California were plotting, as soon as the war began, to take the Presidio at the entrance to the Golden Gate, together with the forts on Alcatraz Island, the Custom House, the Mint, the post office, and all United States property, and then having made the formation of their republic certain, invade the Mexican state of Sonora and annex it to the new commonwealth, has never been gainsaid. That these conspiracies existed and were held in grave seriousness is revealed by the official correspondence of that time. That they had been fomenting for many months is apparently revealed by this additional fact, during Buchanan's administration, John B. Floyd, a Southern man who gave up his position to fight for the Confederacy, was Secretary of War. When the rebellion started, it was found that Floyd, while in office, had removed 135,430 firearms, together with much ammunition and heavy ordnance, from the big government arsenal at Springfield, Massachusetts, and distributed them at various points in the South and Southwest. Of this number, 50,000 were sent to California, where 25,000 muskets had already been stored. And all this was done underhandedly, without the knowledge of Congress. California was unfortunate in having as a representative in the United States Senate at this time, William Gwynne, also a man of Southern birth, who had cast his fortune in the Golden State at the outset, when the gold boom was on. Until secession was imminent, Gwynne served his adopted state well enough. His encouragement of the Pony Express enterprise has already been pointed out. It is doubtful if he were statesman enough to have foreseen the significant part this organization was to play in the early stages of the war. Otherwise, his efforts in its behalf must have been lacking, though the careers of political adventurers like Gwynne are full of strange inconsistencies. Note. After the war had started, Gwynne deserted California and the Union and joined the Confederacy. When this power was broken up, he fled to Mexico and entered the service of Maximilian, then puppet emperor of that unfortunate country. Maximilian bestowed an abundance of hollow honors upon the renegade senator, and made him Duke of the Province of Sonora, which region Gwynne and his clique had doubtless coveted as an integral part of their projected Republic of the Pacific. 
Because of this empty title, the nickname Duke was ever afterward given him. When Maximilian's soap bubble monarchy had disappeared, Gwynne finally returned to California, where he passed his old age in retirement. Speaking in the Senate on December 12, 1859, Gwynne declared that he believed that all slaveholding states of this confederacy can establish a separate and independent government that will be impregnable to the assaults of all foreign enemies. He further went on to show that they had the power to do it, and asserted that if the southern states went out of the Union, California would be with the South. Then, as a convincing proof of his duplicity, he had these pro-rebel statements stricken from the official report of his speech that his constituents might not take fright, and perhaps spoil some of the designs which he and his scheming colleagues had upon California. Of course these remarks reached the ears of his constituents anyhow, and though prefaced by a studied evasiveness on his part, they contributed much to the feeling of unrest and insecurity that then prevailed along the coast. It is of course a well-known fact that California never did secede, and that soon after the war began she swung definitely and conclusively into the Union column. The danger of secession was wholly potential. Yet potential dangers are nonetheless real. Had it not been for the determined energies of a few loyalists in California, led by General E. A. Sumner and cooperating with the federal government by means of the swiftest communication then possible, the Pony Express, history today might read differently. Now to turn once more to the potential dangers that made the California crisis a reality. About three-eighths of the population were of southern descent and solidly united in sympathy for the Confederate states. This vigorous minority included upwards of 16,000 Knights of the Golden Circle, a pro-Confederate secret organization that was active and dangerous in all the doubtful states in winning over to the southern cause those who feebly protested loyalty to the Union, but who opposed war. Many of these knights were prosperous and substantial citizens, who, working under the guise of their local respectability, exerted a profound influence. Here, then, at the outset, was a vigorous and not a small minority, whose influence was greatly out of proportion to their numbers because of their zeal, and who would have seized the balance of power, unless held in check by an aroused Union sentiment and military intimidation. Another class of men to be feared was a small but powerful group representing much wealth, a financial class which proverbially shuns war because of the expense which war involves, a class that always insists upon peace, even at the cost of compromising honor. These men, with the influence which their money commanded, would inevitably espouse the side that seemed the most likely of speedy success. And in view of the early successes of the Confederate armies, and the zealous proselytizing of rebel sympathizers in their midst, they were a potential risk to loyal California. The native Spanish or Mexican classes, then numerically strong in that state, were appealed to by the anti-unionists from various cunning approaches, 
chief of which was the theory that the many real estate troubles and complicated land titles by which they had been annoyed since the separation from Old Mexico in 1847 would be promptly adjusted under the Confederate authority. While nearly all these natives were ignorant, many held considerable property, and they in turn influenced their poorer brethren. Chimerical as this argument may sound, it had much weight. Another group of persons, also large potentially, and a serious menace when proselyted by the apostles of rebellion, were the squatters and trespassers who were occupying land to which they had no lawful right. Many of these men were reckless. Some had already been entangled in the courts because of their false land claims. Hence their attitude toward the existing government was ugly and defiant yet they were now assured that they might remain on their lands forever undisturbed under a rebel regime. Added to all these sources of danger was the attitude of the thousands of well-meaning people who, regardless of rebel solicitation, were at first indifferent. They thought that the great distance which separated them from the seat of war made it a matter of but little importance whether California aroused herself or not. They were of course counseling neutrality as the easiest way of avoiding trouble. Turning now to the forces, moral, military, and political, that were working to save California, first there was a loyal newspaper press, which saw and followed its duty with unflinching devotion. It firmly held before the people the loyal responsibility of the state and declared that the ties of union were too sacred to be broken. It was the moral duty of the people to remain loyal. It truthfully asserted that California's influence in the Federal Union should be an example for other states to follow. If the idea of a Pacific Republic were repudiated by their own citizens, such action would discourage secession elsewhere and be a great moral handicap to that movement. And the press further pointed out with convincing clearness that should the Union be dissolved, the project for a Pacific Railroad, with which the future of the Commonwealth was inevitably committed, would likely fail. Note, all parties in California were unanimous in their desire for a transcontinental railroad. No political faction there could receive any support unless it strongly endorsed this project. Aroused by the moral importance of its position, the state legislature, early in the winter of 1860-1861, had passed a resolution of fidelity to the Union, in which it declared that California is ready to maintain the rights and honor of the national government at home and abroad, and at all times to respond to any requisitions that may be made upon her to defend the Republic against foreign or domestic foes. Succeeding events proved the genuineness of this resolve. In the early spring of 1861, the War Department sent General Edwin A. Summer to take command of the Military Department of the Pacific with headquarters at San Francisco, supplanting General Albert Sidney Johnston, who resigned to fight for the South. This was a most fortunate appointment, as Sumner proved a resourceful and capable official, ideally suited to meet the crisis before him. Nor does this reflect in any way upon the superb soldierly qualities of his predecessor. 
Johnston was no doubt too manly an officer to take part in the romantic conspiracies about him. He was every inch a brave soldier who did his fighting in the open. Like Robert E. Lee, he joined the Confederacy in conscientious good faith, and he met death bravely at Shiloh in April of 1862. Sumner was a man of action, and he faced the situation squarely. To him, California and the nation will always be indebted. One of his first decisive acts was to check the secession movement in Southern California by placing a strong detachment of soldiers at Los Angeles. This force proved enough to stop any incipient uprisings in that part of the state. Some of the disturbing element in this district then moved over into Nevada, where cooperation was made with the pro-Confederate men there. The Nevada rebel faction had made considerable headway by assuring unsuspecting persons that it was acting on the authority of the Confederate government. On June 5, 1861, the rebel flag was unfurled at Virginia City. Again, Sumner acted. He immediately sent a federal force to garrison Fort Churchill, and a body of men under Major Blake and Captain Moore seized all arms found in the possession of suspected persons. A rebel militia company with 400 men enrolled, and 100 under arms was found and dispersed by the Federals. This decisive action completely stopped any uprisings across the state line, uprisings which might easily have spread into California. In the meantime, under General Sumner's direction, soldiers had been enlisted and were being rapidly drilled for any emergency. The War Department, on being advised of this available force, at once sent the following dispatch, which, with those that follow, are typical of the correspondence, which the Pony Express couriers were now rushing across the continent toward and from Washington. Telegraph and Pony Express, Adjutant General's Office, Washington, July 24, 1861. Brigadier General Sumner, Commanding Department of the Pacific. One regiment of infantry and five companies of cavalry have been accepted from California to aid in protecting the overland mail route via Salt Lake. Please detail officers to muster these troops into service. Blanks will be sent by steamer. By order, George D. Ruggles, Assistant Adjutant General. While recognizing the great need of extending proper military protection to the mail route, it must have been disheartening to Sumner and the Loyalists to see this force ordered into service outside the state. For now, late in the summer of 1861, the time of national crisis, the Californian trouble was approaching its climax. On July 20th, the Union Army had been beaten at Bull Run and driven back, a rabble of fugitives, into the panic-stricken capital. Then came weeks and months of delay and uncertainty while the overcautious McClellan sought to build up a new military machine. The entire North was overspread with gloom. The Confederates were jubilant and full of self-confidence. In California, the psychological situation was similar, but even more acute for encouraged by Confederate success, 
the rebel faction became bolder than ever and openly planned to win the state election to be held on September 4th. If successful at the polls, the reins of organized political power would pass into its hands, and a secession convention would be a direct possibility. And to intensify the danger was the confirmed indifference or stubbornness of many citizens who seemed to place petty personal differences before the interests of the state and nation at large. As is well known, Lincoln and the federal government accepted the defeat at Bull Run calmly and set about with grim determination to whip the South at any cost. The president asked Congress for 400,000 men and was voted 500,000. In pursuance of such policies, these urgent dispatches were hurried across the country. War Department, Washington, August 14, 1861, Honorable John G. Downey, Governor of California, Sacramento City, California. Please organize, equip, and have mustered into service, at the earliest date possible, four regiments of infantry and one regiment of cavalry to be placed at the disposal of General Sumner. Simon Cameron, Secretary of War by telegraph to Fort Kearney and thence by Pony Express and Telegraph. War Department, August 15, 1861. Honorable John G. Downey, Governor of California, Sacramento City, California. In filling the requisition given you August 14th for five regiments, please make General J. H. Carleton of San Francisco, Colonel of a Cavalry Regiment, and give him proper authority to organize as promptly as possible. Simon Cameron, Secretary of War. Telegraph and Pony Express and Telegraph. The work of enlisting the 5,000 men thus requisitioned was carried forward with great rapidity. Within two weeks, on the 28th, the Pony Express brought word that the War Department was about to order this force overland into Texas, to act, no doubt, as a barrier to the advancing Confederate armies who were then planning an invasion of New Mexico, as the first decisive step in carrying the conflict into the heart of the Southwest. It was understood, further, that General Sumner would be ordered to vacate his position as commander of the Department of the Pacific and lead his recruits into the service. To the authorities at Washington, a campaign of aggression with Western troops had no doubt seemed the best means of defending California and adjacent territory from Confederate attack. To the Unionists of California, the report that their troops and Sumner were to leave the state spelt extreme discouragement. They had felt some degree of hope and security, so long as organized forces were in their midst and the presence of Sumner everywhere inspired confidence among discouraged patriots. To be deprived of their soldiers was bad enough. To lose Sumner was intolerable. Accordingly, a formal petition protesting against this action was drawn up, addressed to the War Department, and signed by important firms and prominent businessmen of San Francisco. In this petition they said, among other things, that the War Department probably was not aware of the real state of affairs in California, and they openly requested that the order be rescinded. 
They declared that a majority of the California state officers were out-and-out secessionists, and that the others were at least hostile to the administration and would accept a peace policy at any sacrifice. They were suspicious of the governor's loyalty and declared that every appointment made by our governor within the last three months unmistakably indicates his entire sympathy and cooperation with those plotting to sever California from her allegiance to the Union, and that, too, at the hazard of civil war. Note. In the writer's judgment, these charges against Governor Downey were prejudicial and unjust. Continuing at detailed length, the petitioners spoke of the great effort being put forth by the secession element to win the forthcoming election. Whereas their opponents were united, the Union Party was divided into a Douglas and a Republican faction. Should the anti-Unionists triumph, they declared there were reasons to expect not merely the loss of California to the Union ranks, but internecine strife and fratricidal murders such as were then ravaging the Missouri and Kansas border. The petition then pointed out the truly great importance of California to the Union, and asserted that no precaution leading to the preservation of her loyalty should be overlooked. It was a thousand times easier to retain a state in allegiance than to overcome disloyalty disguised as state authority. The best way to check treasonable activities was to convince traitors of their helplessness. The petitioners further declared that to deprive California of needed United States military support just then would be a direct encouragement to traitors. An ounce of precaution was worth a pound of cure. The Loyalists triumphed in the state election on September 4, 1861, and on that date the California crisis was safely passed. The contest, to be sure, had revealed about 20,000 anti-Union voters in the state, but the success of the Union faction restored their feeling of self-confidence. The pendulum had at last swung safely in the right direction, and henceforth California could be and was reckoned as a loyal asset to the Union. Such expressions of disloyalty as her secessionists continued to disclose were of a sporadic and flimsy nature, never materializing into a formidable sentiment, and, adding to their discouragement, the failure of the Confederate invasion of New Mexico in 1862 was no doubt an important factor in suppressing any further open desires for secession. Sumner was not called east until the October following the election. His removal, of course, caused keen regret along the coast, but Colonel George Wright, his successor in charge of the Department of the Pacific, proved a masterful man and in every way equal to the situation. In the long run, Colonel Wright probably was as satisfactory to the loyal people of California as General Sumner had been. The 5,000 troops were not detailed for duty in the South. Like the first detachment of 1,500, their efforts were directed mainly to protecting the overland mails and guarding the frontier. Note. During the War of the Rebellion, California raised 16,231 troops, more than the whole United States Army had been at the commencement of hostilities. 
Practically all these soldiers were assigned to routine and patrol duty in the far west, such as keeping down Indian revolts and garrisoning forts as a defense against any uprising of Indians, or protection against Confederate invasion. The exceptions were the California Hundred and the California Four Hundred, volunteer detachments who went east of their own accord and won undying honors in the thick of the struggle. Throughout this crisis, news was received twice a week by the Pony Express, and, be it remembered, in less than half the time required by the old stagecoach. Of its services, then, no better words can be used than those of Hubert Howe Bancroft. It was the pony to which everyone looked for deliverance. Men prayed for the safety of the little beast, and trembled lest the service should be discontinued. Telegraphic dispatches from Washington and New York were sent to St. Louis and thence to Fort Kearney, whence the pony brought them to Sacramento, where they were telegraphed to San Francisco. Great was the relief of the people when Hole's bill for a daily mail service was passed, and the service changed from the southern to the central route, as it was early in the summer. Yet, after all, it was to be the flying pony that all eyes and hearts were turned. The Pony Express was a real factor in the preservation of California to the Union. End of chapter 5 Recording by Roger Moline